I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. Words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil, he's a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are our last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Welcome back to Trenis Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I'm sick. I'm not really sure what the problem is exactly, but I've got I've got kind of a minor cold here. And this is one of those little bugs that you get sometimes where it's 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 not even really being sick in some ways. It's it's just kind of annoying, you know? You're not really sick or anything, you're just perpetually annoyed because of the fact that you have this gunk, that's all. So, you may hear me coughing and whatnot a little bit uh, during this episode. I'll try to edit that stuff out as much as I can, but that's pretty much the situation that we're dealing with right now. Now, as to right now, for the past couple of weeks, I've been working my way through a series all about Hush, the Batman storyline called Hush. And the reason for that actually got a little bit more into that in the first part of this Hush retrospective, so I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. But in brief, what I've kind of, what I've come to do over the past couple of years is I've come to regard Hush as being sort of, it's sort of like the series finale for my version of Batman. Does that make sense? My view is that the way that comic book stories are told If you had to compare that style to anything cinematic, to me, television is actually the the more logical uh, comparison to make, you know? And so, because of that, and because of the fact that goings-on with Batman after Hush really aren't my cup of tea, I've kind of started thinking about Hush as a storyline as being sort of like Batman's series finale. And so, there you have it. That's pretty much how I have to uh, process goings-on with Batman after Hush. It's all part of some parallel universe. It's an imaginary story. It, It doesn't affect at least my Batman, so on and so forth. That's pretty much the way that I have to rationalize it to myself at this point, you know? So, that's how I choose to view it, and nobody can stop me. So, anyway... 
In relation to all of that stuff, I'm going to be talking about two Batman comics today. That is to say, Batman number 612 and number 613. And I think that's pretty much it, at least in terms of background information. So that just about leads us to Batman number 612. Cover date is April of 2003. On sale date is February 26th, 2003. Cover price is 225. Editor is Robert Shrek. Writer is Jeff Loeb. Penciler is Jim Lee. Inker is Scott Williams. Letterer is Richard Starkings. Colorist is Alex Sinclair. And title of the story is The Battle. Summary is as follows. Batman and Catwoman retreat to the underwater system of Metropolis to escape from Superman, who, for those of you with short memories, at the end of our last episode became mind-controlled by Poison Ivy. After a while, they arrive at the main electrical relay point, and Batman removes the kryptonite ring from his utility belt in preparation for dealing with Superman. Catwoman leaves the battlefield and goes to the surface to start the next step of their plan. Superman smashes through the wall, and Batman immediately takes the offensive, battering him with a fury of blows, while the kryptonite in his hand steadily weakens Superman. Although he's under Poison Ivy's control, there is still a part of Superman's true intellect that keeps him from using his full strength against the Dark Knight. Superman baits, or rather, Batman baits Superman into following him topside. On the top of one of the neighboring skyscrapers, Catwoman has Lois Lane hostage. Batman draws Superman's attention to them, just as Catwoman drops Lois from the top of the building. If need be, Batman knows that Catwoman can reach Lois in time, but fortunately, she doesn't have to. The shock of seeing Lois in danger breaks Ivy's hold on Superman, and he flies up and catches her. After having recovered control over himself, Superman can't tell where Poison Ivy is hiding. However, Batman takes one of Ivy's leaves, and he has an idea. Sometime later, Superman, Batman, and Catwoman go to Poison Ivy's penthouse to confront her. Ivy attempts to escape, but Crypto is present to block her path. Catwoman lays her out with one solid punch to the jaw. Batman's idea of using Crypto's keen smell senses to track Ivy from just her scent on the leaf worked rather nicely. Moments later, Superman asks Batman why Catwoman picked Lois, and Batman assures him that it was all on her own, and that he didn't reveal Superman's secret identity to Catwoman. Superman's thankful for the help that Batman provided, and they shake hands as true friends. However, from a building not far away, the mysterious man in the shadows with bandages on his head watches the scene and laughs in a maniacal way. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, for starters, this cover, you know, it's kind of funny. It doesn't literally come true in the story, which, as I've said, that's not good and it's not bad. It's just, well, it's either true or it's not true. You know, that covers literally show you what happens in the story. And in this case, this doesn't literally happen in the story. But it is, nevertheless, representative of the struggle between Superman and Batman in this issue. And for those of you who are following, or rather, who are not following along, it's basically a picture of Superman and all of his Superman awesomeness. He's got Batman kneeling on the ground, and he's basically strangling the life out of him with one hand. And as I say, this doesn't literally happen anywhere in the issue, but like I, but as I also said... This is, nevertheless, 
it's not literally fact, but it's nevertheless true. Does that make sense? This doesn't actually happen in the story, but it is nevertheless reflective of the conflict between Superman and Batman in this story. And so on that basis, it works for me. Now, there is a variant. There is a variant cover for uh, for uh, Batman number 612. And it's basically the same cover that you've already seen, but this time it's it's done in in just it's just the pencils. So rather than having all of the inks and the colors and the Photoshop effects and all that fun stuff that you've got on the regular cover, this is just basically uh, Jim Lee's plain pencils. And then that's it. So, you know, there are times when seeing, you know, just the uh, the original pencil art for a story, or at least for a piece of art, it's in some ways it's actually better than seeing the finished product because you can see that, yeah, just in order to be printed, on a page, you need to have, you know, you need to have the ink and the color is nice and all of that stuff. But there are some artists out there and I, I don't know why, but I always include Kurt Swan among them just because the, the pen, his pencil art that I've seen, you know, just unfinished, uncolored and all that, the, the Kurt Swan pencil art that I've seen, it almost is like inking that stuff, coloring that stuff and, and and whatnot, it's almost like you're taking something away from the art whenever you do that, you know? And this is all sort of a long way of saying that's not really true for Jim Lee's pencils, at least as it goes for this cover, because the... And it could just be that this is such a sort of a sketchy cover to begin with anyway, because it's got that rainy background and there's just... Uh, not much detail going on in the background and all that stuff. It could it could very well be that's actually the issue with this. But going strictly by the pencil version of this cover, it's just not. Eh, it's just not there. You know, there's obviously something missing, and obviously what's missing is the ink, the 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 coloring, the Photoshop effects, and all of that. So what I'm saying is, Jim Lee is no Kurt Swan. So that's probably not breaking news to a lot of you. Now, to get into the story properly, basically this picks up right where the last issue left off, and it's basically Batman and Catwoman versus Superman and Poison Ivy. And honestly, there's not really tons of Poison Ivy in this story. She's basically using Superman as her all-purpose thug while she makes her escape. And this does sort of raise the question of when and how Poison Ivy would have gotten to Superman. And the story makes no effort to answer that question. And this sort of leads into one of the main gripes I have with Jeff Loeb as a storyteller is that he doesn't, he doesn't always flesh out. In fact, he rarely fleshes out the entirety of the story. You know, there are always these developments, which are, well, that that are surprising and they're they're shocking but you have no fucking idea how this is actually supposed to work in universe you know so i don't know that's that's always been one of the uh the hang-ups with my, at least one of my hang-ups with with jeff Loeb as a as a writer so and i think that's one of the reasons why at least his most famous work or some of his most famous uh, famous work tends to be mysteries. You know, you've got stuff like The Long Halloween, which is a mystery slash whodunit. You've got 
uh, Dark Victory, which is a mystery slash whodunit. You've got Hush, which is a mystery slash whodunit, kind of. So, and with mysteries, oftentimes the reader is so absorbed in the story, they're not necessarily thinking rationally or critically about the plot. They're just thinking about the story and what happens next, you know? And this is one of those moments when, guys, I got to tell you, it's a great fucking cliffhanger to have Superman under Poison Ivy's control wreck shop on Batman at the tail end of an issue as a cliffhanger. And he swoops in there and he's, uh, Batman, I'm I'm going to kick your ass. And it, it, it's it's I'm going to kick your ass all the way uh, from one side of Metropolis to the other. And it's it's going to be a glorious ass kicking. And, you know, it, that's a great fucking cliffhanger. But when you actually start thinking about this, just like rationally, how did Poison Ivy ever get to Superman? You know, now, like I say, the story makes new effort to explain that. And this is not the last time I'm going to criticize Jeff Loeb for this. <laughs> you are going to hear this again before too long. Not in this episode, I don't think. But before too long, you are going to be hearing that again. So get ready for that. Now, next, and this is, uh, this again is on page one, panel two, in fact. Poison Ivy says, lover, kill them. And she's talking to Superman and she's saying, you know, hey, Batman and Catwoman, kill those motherfuckers. And she calls Superman lover. Now, I questioned, I think I've questioned actually in, in all of the Hush chapters up to this point, that guys, I think Poison Ivy, given her ability to control people's minds, I think Poison Ivy is a rapist. And there's a very good chance that if she's calling Superman lover, I don't know. Uh, I said last episode that there's evidence to indicate that Poison Ivy raped Superman. Well, here's your evidence, guys. It's, uh, I don't even know what to say at this point. I, you know what? I've, I, I've had to mention this now, like I say, not only in this episode, but in the two episodes before this one. And I'm getting a little tired of talking about this just because of the fact that this is rape when you, especially like this kind of, I don't even know what else to call it, except this kind of date rape type of thing is just so fucking disgusting and creepy to even think about. I, I just, no, I'm just moving on now. So there is a kind of neat little moment on, uh, right, right here on page one in the third panel where Catwoman says, tell me you, uh, tell me you have a plan. And Batman think he doesn't actually answer, but he thinks to himself that, yeah, <laughs> he does indeed have a plan. And so anyway, what happens is on, Pages two and three, we get another one of this sort of two-page splash layout page where you've got basically four panels. In on the far left side of this splash page, you've got Batman, he's tackling Catwoman, and he's basically forcing her underground, right? On the far right of the page, you've got a sort of a close-up shot of uh, Poison Ivy, and she's saying, they're getting away, no! And then in the center, between those two panels, you have two panels that are stacked up, one on top of another. And what this does is it creates a sort of a, a negative space effect of these four panels that is shaped like an H. H for hush. I don't know if Jim Lee did that on purpose, but I, I, I mean, because like on the one hand, 
you know, Jim Lee is not the type of artist that I would have given. I, I wouldn't have given him credit for thinking in those types of terms, you know. Um, but on the other hand, I mean, the guy, he is an artist, you know. And what I find is that artists, they have a fundamentally different way of looking at the world than the rest of us do. So whenever you see if little flourishes like this just again and again and again, I kind of start thinking that, you know, do I actually have the right to bet against Jim Lee when it comes to this? And so I'll just split the difference and say, I don't know. I don't know if this little H effect that he seems to use all the time in, in this storyline, if this is intentional or not, but I, it's almost like I'm not doing my job if I don't mention it. So, hmm. Anyway, so getting into page four, and before you know it, I'm probably going to lose track with all of these page numbers because they don't actually have numbers on the pages. I'm just keeping count as I go along. Um, starting on page four and then, um, and then just kind of going forward from there, you've basically got Batman and Catwoman, they're underground and they're basically formulating just a strategy on how they're going to deal with this situation. Page five, you've got Poison Ivy. And again, this sort of, that subject that I'm kind of tired of talking about, it just sort of rears its ugly head because on the very last page, not page, on the very last panel, Ivy says, now come closer so I can remind you what will make me happy. Now, there are a couple of different ways of eh, interpreting that. And you know how I, at least one possible interpretation that I'm reading into that. And I'm, like I say, sick and tired of talking about that. So we are just going to move right along. <sighs> Basically, what happens is Batman whips his kryptonite ring out of his out of his utility belt, and he uses that to offer some measure of protection for himself and Catwoman against Superman. And there's that there's actually a sort of insightful moment with with that that Bat that, that Jeff Loeb makes about Batman as compared to as compared to Superman, and it goes a little something something like this: Deep down, Clark's essentially a good person, and deep down, I'm not. And so it's at that moment that Batman, using his kryptonite ring, bashes Superman right in the fucking face. And from there, the fight's on. Superman, it needs to be said that, number one, on some deep interpersonal level, Superman knows he's being controlled. And so he's struggling to hold himself back. He's not necessarily using all of the tricks in his arsenal. He doesn't actually even want to fight Batman. Batman, on the other hand, is not necessarily giving Superman that same measure of mercy. And this is a kind of interesting character insight for Jeff Loeb to make. I mean, like I say, as, you know, just in terms of like story mechanics and, you know, the way that things happen and why they happen and whatnot, you know, I think that there's some merit in saying that Jeff Loeb, there's room for improvement there, put it that way. You know, having said that, though, there are, sometimes Jeff Loeb will surprise you. Sometimes Loeb will come down with these character insights that absolutely, positively, totally make sense for these characters. You know what I mean? And that, I think, is what we're seeing on this page, because it's 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 textual 
on the page. You've got Batman saying, Clark's a good person. I'm not. And, but it's also made literal on the page where Batman is basically taking advantage. He's taking full advantage, in fact, of Superman's willingness to hold back, you know? And so this, you know, good person, bad person dichotomy that's going on, like I say, it's textual on the page and it's also literal on the page. You're seeing it in action. And so that's one of those reasons why I generally don't like stories where Batman beats the shit out of Superman just because, guys, it it's just kind of done to death. You know, it really is. But number one, what we're dealing with here is Batman's series finale, okay? So I, I'll make allowance just because of that. We're also seeing this as this hush, among other things, is it's it's like Batman's greatest hits. And so a common trope in a lot of Batman stories, well, not a lot of Batman stories, but at least some Batman stories, some of the more popular and well-known ones like The Dark Knight Returns, is Batman fighting Superman, and somehow Batman wins the fight. So there's that. But the other thing, the the reason that this fight in particular, I don't really mind so much, is because of the fact that Superman, like they would not be fighting in this story, except for Poison Ivy. Superman isn't really, he's trying as much as, as, much as he can, as hard as he can, not to fight, right? And so that's the reason why Batman wins. Because, guys, in a rational sane world there's no way there's no fucking way batman wins the fight okay if superman and batman ever show up to win the fight boom i mean it's over the the instant bruce walks into the room he becomes a stain on the wall you know but you can buy it here because of the fact that superman is in in his inner core he's fighting this you know he's fighting poison ivy's control over him so He's not giving this his best effort, whereas Batman is. And so that's why it works for me. So anyway, uh, basically, Batman beats Superman senseless with his uh, uh, fists, basically. And then after that, he realizes, look, my hands are about to break and I haven't even really done any real damage to Clark yet. So now it's time for me to switch to other things. So he uses hypersonics and then he, he uses a, a, a flash grenade. And then he uses the the entire electrical grid for the entire uh, city of Metropolis. And basically, that's enough to stun Superman. After which Batman makes his escape. He draws Superman's attention to Lois Lane in, uh, in seeming peril. And Superman is actually about to smash Batman with what looks like a street sweeper or a Zamboni. I don't even know what the fuck this thing is. Um, which makes me wonder, you know, what a Zamboni would be doing out on the streets of Metropolis. But mine is not to reason why. Mine is but to do or die. So, anyway. Batman, and this is the point, is about to get squashed, like, uh, squashed flat like a pancake. And that's when he points, he directs Superman's attention to Lois, who seems to be in peril. And then he says, You can save her or fight me. It's your choice, not Poison Ivy's. That's on page 15. And this is just a neat little moment, you know, uh, because Batman is basically, rather than 
for once using force here. He was only using force really to protect himself and to slow Clark down. But now he's not using force anymore. He's basically using Clark's deepest love against him. You know, that is going to be what truly breaks Poison Ivy's control over Superman. And that leads just about leads us to page 16, where we see Catwoman standing on a flagpole with perfect balance somehow because fucking Catwoman. And she's got she's basically dangling Lois off of the flagpole. Lois apparently doesn't have too much of a she doesn't really have too much of a survival mechanism because she elbows Catwoman in the ribs. Catwoman loses her her grip on Lois and Lois falls boobs first off of the building. And then at the bottom of the page, we just see this red streak flashing up into the sky. And we know that Superman is on the case. And sure enough, he he catches Lois. And after that, the end more or less ends happily. I mean, we've basically got the I guess the main, I guess, centerpiece of this issue out of the way. And so from here, it's really just a simple matter of taking Poison Ivy into custody and then how best to go about doing that. But before that, we get this kind of neat little moment on on page 18 where we see Catwoman. She's not only doing a handstand, she's not only doing the splits like perfectly level while she's doing the handstand, she's not only doing the handstand with just one hand, she's got herself balanced, it looks like, on just four fingers, you know? And actually, yeah, four fingers. It looks like her thumb, her index finger, her ring finger, and her, or rather, her thumb, her index finger, her middle finger, and her ring finger on her right hand. And that's what she's using to prop herself up. And ouch. Owie, owie, owie. I mean, like, sometimes you see, like, people doing, like, gymnastics or flexibility type stuff or stretching or whatnot, and... It just hurts to look at, and this, owie, 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 owie. So, anyway, it, it, I find this very actually true to character for Catwoman on the one hand, but man, on the other hand, it hurts just fucking looking at this thing. Anyway, so Superman and Batman basically catch up with one another and say that basically what they're trying to do is work out how best to catch up with Poison Ivy. And so what they eventually reason is, well, a dog is probably going to be our best bet. So that's pretty much what they do. They track Poison Ivy back to her penthouse. And it's right around there that um, Crypto basically corners Poison Ivy. And you kind of have to figure that Poison Ivy's tricks have at various points worked on Catwoman. They've worked on, we just saw them work on Superman. We know they can work on Batman, but they're probably not going to work on Crypto. So it made sense to bring him along if, just in case, Push truly has to come to shove, right? And speaking of Push coming to shove, Catwoman decks Poison Ivy just right across the mouth and lays her out with one shot. And Superman even goes so far as to say, was that really necessary? And Catwoman and Batman both say Yes, and I kind of have to come down on their side with this. I mean, let's just assume that Poison Ivy really is guilty of all of the rape that I've accused her of. Yeah, in fact, that, yeah, she, that's, she, I think she's actually getting off pretty light, you know, all things considered. 
So, oh, by the way, that reminds me of something. I, I don't know why, but I was just looking at the bottom of this page here. I see Batman and Catwoman saying yes in unison with one another. And I I believe I said in an... It was either the first part of Hush, this Hush uh, retrospective, or the second. I forget which one. But I, I think what I said was I uh, questioned out loud if Jim Lee created... He's the one who designed this this Catwoman outfit that we're seeing in Hush. And just as I was uh, futzing around reading some comics the other day, what I discovered is, no, in fact, uh, Jim Lee did not create this design of Catwoman's outfit. This was actually designed and created by Darwin Cook. May he rest in peace. So I didn't know that, but just in the interest of setting the record straight, well, now you know. So this, so this, this is probably my favorite Catwoman outfit. You know, this sort of, it's, it's an otherwise kind of a simple bodysuit with uh, with the the cat ears at the, uh, at the top the cat shaped the cat ear shaped goggles and then that giant ring zipper uh just below her chin and it doesn't really show a whole lot of skin when you really think about it but this is just a really fucking neat costume and this is probably my favorite catwoman costume at least as far as comics are concerned so anywho um following on from there we get basically the denouement between Batman and Superman, and they're both standing on uh, on top of a building and kind of posing and looking very superhero-like here. And basically, Batman lays out what his methodology was. You know, he told her that Superman, he didn't give away secret identities or anything like that. He just said that Superman cares about the people that work at the Daily Planet, and at that moment... Catwoman basically had three choices. She had Lois, Jimmy Olsen, or even Perry White. It was Catwoman, not Batman. It was Catwoman who picked Lois. And Superman says, well, you know, dude, notwithstanding, you could have gotten Lois killed. And Batman says that he believes in Superman. And that's why he knew that Lois was never in any real danger. You know, I don't know. It just... It, it it works for me. Now, from there, we basically get Hush, who's watching from the shadows, and this is all just kind of a little bit of a 90s thing going on here. But like I say, this is Batman's series finale, so whatever. I go with it. And uh, I'm, I'm willing to let Jeff Lowe be a little bit indulgent, at least on this. So, excuse me while I have a sip off of my Dr. Pepper here because I've been running my mouth now for what's it been like 30 minutes or, or more. So let's see here. I'm also going to take a couple drags off my e-cig here.
All right. So getting into Batman number 613. Cover date is May of 2003. On sale date is March 26th, 2003. Cover price is 225. Editor is Robert Shrek. Writer is Jeff Loeb. Penciler is Jim Lee. Inker is Scott Williams. Letterer is Richard Starkings. Colorist is Alex Sinclair. Story title is The Opera. Story synopsis is as follows. Bruce Wayne goes to the Gotham City Opera House along with Tommy Elliott, Selena Kyle, and Leslie Tompkins. Starting the opera, the main protagonist starts performing strangely until it's revealed to actually be Harley Quinn in disguise. Harley's masked henchmen take control of the orchestra pit and begin spraying the room with gunfire. Bruce, Selena, and Tommy all move to conduct crowd control. Harley tries to steal a pendant from around Tommy's neck, which is an important heirloom that he's had ever since he was a child. Bruce quickly ducks and moves away to change into Batman. He's surprised to see Harley acting in such a violent fashion, a fashion that is quite uncharacteristic of her. While Batman intercepts Harley, Selina changes into Catwoman. Catwoman and Harley bounce all across the stage trying to catch each other, but ultimately Harley shoots Catwoman. Batman races to Catwoman's side as Harley makes her escape. Catwoman's wound is only superficial, and she chastises Batman for letting Harley get away. On her way outside the opera house, Harley is intercepted by Thomas Elliot, who wants his pendant back. Harley outruns him, and Thomas follows her outside the building. Batman runs outside, but the villain is nowhere to be found. Suddenly, he hears a gunshot coming from a nearby alley. Running towards the sound of the gun, he finds the Joker standing over the bleeding body of his friend, Tommy Elliot. To be continued. So, what did I think? Well, first, this is kind of a neat little cover here in that it's it's basically a poster of Harley Quinn holding a giant fucking gun. And she's just pointing it casually to the side. Standing in front of the poster is Batman holding a bloodied-up Catwoman. And so it looks like Harley is pointing a gun at Batman's head, but she's not. It's a poster of Harley, and then the flesh and blood, uh, the fl flesh and blood Batman is standing in front of the poster, and it creates this sort of optical illusion of Harley pointing a gun at the Joker. Anyway, it's, it's harder to describe than it is to actually look at and understand, but I don't know. I think I, I kind of like this cover. So anyway... Um, the caption of the, of the cover says, Poster Child for Crime. So a little bit of a play on words there. So getting into the story, though, uh, we basically get a little bit of Bruce Wayne as civilian and kind of playboy, man about town, kind of celebrity type, which I must say, we don't get as much of that in this story as you might think. And so it's always kind of fun when we can get it, because again, this is Batman's sort of series finale. So, you know, all of these familiar tropes and whatnot of Batman being Batman. Well, I just, I, I like it. So uh, also on uh, page one, there's this, there's basically everybody going through security. Apparently this opera house has metal detectors, which on the one hand, that seems to me very unlikely. But number one, it's not like I've ever been to the opera. Number two, 
Who's to say that every single business establishment in Gotham fucking city doesn't have metal detectors? Just because, guys, let's face it, this is Gotham City. You never know what kind of weirdo is going to come through the door. So maybe it makes sense. I don't know. Anyway, uh, making her way through security, um, you've got Catwoman, and she's talking to one of the uh, the uh, security guards at the door. And I don't know what the hell he's holding in his hand. I mean, it almost looks like it's a bra. But why would Catwoman have a bra in her purse? It just kind of makes you wonder, you know? And speaking of things that make you wonder, Catwoman is wearing this kind of small black dress. It, it basically shows off a lot of boobage. And it doesn't, well, it doesn't go very far down her thigh, shall we say. So it does kind of make you wonder, like if she dropped her keys on the ground, how would she bend over to pick them up? If you know what I mean? But... Uh, On top of that, she's got these sort of, like, elbow-high or bicep-high white gloves. So, interesting little outfit for Catwoman to wear to the opera, right? What's interesting, or at least what's even more interesting, is Leslie Tompkins is standing right behind Catwoman, and it looks like Leslie's outfit is sort of a variation on Selena's outfit. She's wearing what looks like more of more like a black sort of gown, it looks like. And she's got she's got again long white gloves just like Selena. She's also got a gold necklace just like Selena. She's got short hair just like Selena. And it's a longer black dress and she's also got like it's not a an overcoat, but it's like I don't know what you call them cuz I'm not a woman, but what it's this purple like wrap that goes around her shoulders. It's not a coat. It's not a shirt. It's not a jacket. It's not any of that. It's it doesn't even have sleeves. It, I don't know what you call it, but it's like a wrap. And women will put it around their shoulders whenever they're wearing basically dresses that expose their shoulders, but they think they might get cold. And so I don't know what the fuck you call that, but anyway. So what I'm saying is that Selena's outfit isn't really all that different in the big picture from Leslie's outfit, you know? And it does kind of make make you wonder what exactly is being said here, you know? Uh I I honestly don't know, but I mean it's what we're seeing is basically Selena and Leslie having kind of their own take on sort of the same general concept here of a black dress, white gloves, gold necklace, you know? And what that means to both of them, you know? And I don't know what, like I say, I don't know what exactly is being said here or what we're supposed to infer from all of this other than they're wearing, in the big scheme of things, very similar types of attire, I suppose. Anyway, whatever. So, basically, moving right along with all of this, the opera gets underway, and on page three, or pages two and three, I guess, we get another one of those uh, splash layouts where you have one panel on the far left, one panel on the far right, and then two panels stacked one on top of the other in the center. And it creates, using the negative space, an H symbol. And again, it just kind of makes you wonder, is this in fact intentional? You know, does does this H symbol, is this supposed to stand for hush? You know, it just sort of makes you wonder. So, I don't know. There's no way for me to know for sure on that. So, anywho. Now, from there, shit starts getting weird with the opera. 
the singer on the stage starts freely modifying the lyrics. And then what we see on, this is page five. This is basically a sort of reveal of Harley Quinn on the stage holding a giant fucking gun while her, I guess her thugs in the orchestra pit put on their masks, take out their guns, and they start, well, they're basically robbing the place. So, so from there, Harley, she does this sort of acrobatic routine where she flips through the air, she lands in Bruce's opera box, and she ninja kicks Tommy Elliott's cell phone out of his hand. And basically, this is so no one will call the police. Now, what this basically requires us to believe is that Tommy Elliott is the only person in the entire opera house with a cell phone. So I just find that hard to believe. I mean, in this day and age, well, especially like today, you know, if you were to try to try something like this in public, before you know it, you would have literally everybody in the opera. Well, maybe not everybody, but you'd have a shitload of people in the opera doing a live stream of you as you commit all of these acts of robbery and whatnot, and your likeness would be on YouTube within seconds, you know? And so just, I don't know, whatever. It, it's one of those things that it works as long as you don't, like as with a lot of Jeff Loeb stories, it works as long as you don't think too much about it. So anyway, whatever. So from there, the we get a little bit of a flashback here of how much exactly this little pendant means to Tommy because he kicked young Tommy kicked young Bruce Wayne's ass to get the pendant back from him one time. And yeah, you know, that's something certainly that Bruce can relate to. He, because he, he even says that he knows something about a mother's things, you know, and he's thinking of Martha with the, her murderer's gun stretched behind her string of pearls and the guns about to fire kill her and break her pearl uh her pearl necklace all in one go and anyway yeah no i find that actually pretty easy to believe bruce would if look if you can somehow find a way to buy into the idea just on an intellectual level that tommy elliott and everything that he represents in this story that is the things that we've talked about and God knows the things that we haven't. If you can find a way to buy into that stuff, well, good for you. I mean, some people are going to struggle with that more than others. So I don't know. In any case, moving right along, the bad guys open fire on the opera house and Selena, Bruce, Leslie, and Tommy have no choice but to scramble for what little cover they can possibly find. And they notice that in fact Bruce is missing some he's just fucking gone and at that moment Batman swoops down onto the stage and into action and you actually get this really nice sort of glory shot if this is a, a two-page splash on pages 12 and 13 where Batman swoops down onto the stage and Har Harley is just firing away with her gun for all that she's worth but all she's doing is hitting Batman's cape because Batman and after that, the fight's on. And Batman basically takes uh, takes Harley's guys down as quick as she can. Takes them out of action. And it's, you know, I might have actually wanted 
to see a little bit more of, you know, a pitched battle between uh, Batman and Harley's thugs. But you know what? There are only so many pages in any comic. And so you, I guess one must make decisions with these with these types of things. And so basically what we get is uh, two panels of Batman kicking people. And then he throws some some um, he throws like this sort of smoke mace bomb and basically fucks Harley's thugs up that way. And Harley then makes a she makes a, a sort of cryptic comment. She says, you really only know how to stick to the script, huh? meaning you can't improvise. And here she is. She's talking about a script. So is this all prearranged or what? So just makes you wonder. So Harley ends up getting the drop on Batman and is probably about to blow his head off when Catwoman swings into action. Ninja kicks Harley right across the face. And after that, the fight's on. And Harley tries to make her escape, but Catwoman is basically dogging her trail. Oh, I didn't even think about that. You know, the contradiction there. But that's actually kind of funny. But anyway, uh, Harley... Uh, tries to make her escape, but then Catwoman follows her trail uh, very closely right here on page 18. And this act, this art is actually a little bit difficult to follow because it's supposed to show sort of a progression of movement that Harley is making across the stage as she tries to make her escape. And then Catwoman pursues her, but it doesn't look like Catwoman is pursuing her. It looks like Catwoman is like right beside her, even though she's not she's one would imagine supposed to be pursuing her. So it just kind of makes you wonder. I know the effect that Jim Lee is going for here. I just don't think it really works as well as it could, you know? So anyway, Harley gets the drop on, on Catwoman, blasts her right in the shoulder. And right at that moment, members of the audience actually start cheering because of the fact that they think Catwoman, Harley and Batman are all part of the show which kind of pisses Batman's off, uh, Batman off something fierce, but what, you know, what can you do? So Leslie takes this moment to swing into action. She'll take care of Catwoman. You go chase, you go chase Harley, Batman. So Tommy tries getting the drop on Harley, but she kicks him, squaw, in the nuts and makes a run for it. Uh, Tommy chases after her and Batman isn't far, very far behind either of them whenever he wanders outside into the alley behind the opera house, hears a gunshot, and then sprints around the corner and sees the Joker standing over Tommy's body, holding a gun, laughing his ass off. And that's basically the end of the story. And as with anything, you know, what we're, what Loeb is not telling us is just where in the fucking hell the Joker is coming from. Because, you know, you would think that the Joker being as dangerous as he is, if he were to escape from Arkham Asylum, Batman would make a big priority out of tracking the Joker down and putting his ass back in Arkham, you know? That would, you know, there wouldn't be any of these side trips to Metropolis. Batman wouldn't waste his time on a second stringer like Poison Ivy, like he has up to this point. You know, once again, basically what Jeff Loeb is doing here. He wants to go for the shocking reveal of something or other for the sake of a cliffhanger, like he did in the last issue. Or not the last issue, sorry. Uh, back in, um, this was uh, Batman number 611, you know, this shocking reveal as a cliffhanger that 
Superman is under Poison Ivy's control, but how the fuck did that happen? Well, <laughs> don't ask Loeb that. <laughs> and that's basically the same type of thing that we're seeing here. You know, what we're supposed to believe is apparently the Joker has been on the loose this entire time, and Batman just didn't give a shit. And so, anyway, like I say, as with so many things that Jeff Loeb does, this is one of those things that it works, I guess, as long as you don't think about it too much. But the minute you do think about it, fucking it makes no sense whatsoever. But this is Batman's series finale, so I go with it. Anyway, another thing that apparently we're not supposed to think too much about is the sudden change in weather. You know, when uh, when Bruce, Tommy, Selina, and Leslie were heading into the opera house, the weather looked remarkably clear. And what I guess we're supposed to assume is that within 15 or 20 minutes, it's not just, there's not just a, uh, a it's not just raining. This is like a heavy-duty downpour, electrical storm, like major weather event that's going on here, like a major thunderstorm that's going on in Gotham City. So, I don't know, whatever. It, it's good for dramatic effect, I'll give you that, but it just seems a little sudden, random, you know? Anyway, so, but there comes a moment, though, and this is on uh, page 21, where Batman ninja kicks the, the, uh, the door to the opera house, the back door, literally right off its hinges and you and you can see his boot print on the door but you can also see because of the way that the coloring is done it actually looks like he's made not just a print on the door he's actually made an he's actually indented there's a there's an indentation on the door uh from his foot and you can it actually looks like the metal is kind of folded in a little bit where uh, his boot made contact why he couldn't simply open the door i have no idea but he didn't so he kicked the thing off its hinges. And again, it's good for it, it. It's a good dramatic effect. I'll give you that. So I'll roll with it. And that is basically the well, actually, you know what? No, there's there's one other thing about this that I want to that I want to mention. You know, Jim Lee's take on the Joker. It's a little bit weird. I'll give you. I mean, he's had at this point, you know, several issues now to really refine his model for Batman, for Catwoman even Poison Ivy to some degree or another. So he's got, you know, those characters down pretty well. But this is a really weird looking Joker. It's almost like a skull looking Joker, you know, like he doesn't even have a face. It's just a skull. And I don't know. This, I mean, this is one of those things that I think Jim Lee needs a little bit of practice before he's ready for prime time when it comes to the Joker. It's... A good illustration, don't get me wrong, I just don't think it's everything that it could be. You know, this isn't... I mean, everything else about the Joker looks pretty good here, but it's just the face, it looks a little off somehow, you know? And I don't know. I think Jim Lee needs a little bit of work on that. But otherwise, that's basically it for Batman number 612 and number 613. So, so far, that means that we're pretty much at the halfway point now of the Hush storyline and you know maybe now isn't really a bad time to just kind of take stock of where we've been and to some degree or another where we're going to be going and I don't want to spoil too far ahead but there's going to be you know up to this point I think I've been you know fairly indulgent with this story but there's going to be some stuff that starts happening in issues still to come that are going to be it's going to be a lot harder for me to be uh, dismissive of that kind of stuff. I mean, yeah, 
this is Batman's series finale. As far as I'm concerned, this is where my canonical Batman, this is where his story ends, you know? But even in relation to that, you know, there are some, there are some things that are coming that are going to be very difficult for me to, to just accept, you know? But up to this point, you know, this has been a relatively fun, sort of brainless, mindless, low-calorie type of high-octane action story. And it's been a lot of fun. This is... This isn't really, you know, for, for my money, this is not the definitive Batman story. But it's a fun story. You know, I'll say that. Up to this point, it's been a fun story. And I've... I gotta tell you, I've actually had a lot more fun talking about these comics than I was originally expecting to have. You know, and for those of you who aren't really familiar with, I guess, with my history with Jeff Loeb, I'm not exactly the world's biggest Jeff Loeb fan. I mean, don't get me wrong, he seems like a hell of a nice guy. I mean, I've heard a bunch of interviews with Jeff Loeb over the years. He seems like he's just, you couldn't, he's the nicest guy you could ever hope to meet. You could never hope to meet, you know, a guy that's just as fucking cool as, as Jeff Loeb, you know? I get that. But... You know, uh, there are certain aspects of the work that, I don't know, it's, it's, I don't really think it's necessarily worth the reputation that he has. Am I making sense there? You know, it's like his legend looms larger than his actual talent in many cases, you know? There are just certain things that he does, I, I'm, st I'm just starting to think that it's, it's, these are just his sensibilities as a storyteller. It's hard for me to get on board with all of that, you know? It really is. So, there are certain aspects of his work on a technical level. No, you know, it, he's just... I don't think he's worth the reputation that he's got in a great many cases. But that doesn't make him a bad writer. It just makes him overrated, that's all. So, either way. So that, I think, is pretty much it for me this week. Now, for those of you who are any good at math whatsoever... You need to know that I'm gonna be, that next week I'm going to be talking about obviously uh, Batman number 614 and 615, and I think that's pretty much it. So, bye everybody. I will see you next week. I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. 
Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at twotruefreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, Two True Freaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacore of Milan, Italy.